First of all, I'd like to state how presentationally naked I feel this year without the St. Luke's carolers. Charlotte, Helly and Jenny, Ruth and Sophie, Dennis and Will, and Henry and Tim. To misquote Oscar Wilde, there is one thing in the world more complicated than having the St. Luke's carolers here, and that is not having you here. <laughs> I'd like to begin my seventh Gresham Christmas lecture with a piece of television history from 1954. You'll see a crucifer, one Michael Keel, carrying the cross in front of the choristers of King's College, Cambridge. This cross-bearer, Archie, to his friends, had himself been a boy chorister at King's College, Cambridge during the Second World War. In 1954, when this film was shot, Archie was an undergrad student at King's Cambridge. Behind the choristers gently sways Boris Ord, the organist and de facto conductor. And it's Boris Ord, whose behooded back you will shortly see moving away from you, who is the subject of this year's Christmas lecture. Crucifer and choristers enter the antechapel, the nave in King's College Chapel here in Cambridge. A college founded by Henry VI who ordained that in the family of kings there should always be 16 boys to sing as choristers with the grown men. In fact, there are only 13 choristers there behind Michael Keel, the 23-year-old Crucifer. Michael Keel sadly died last year, 2019, at the age of 88. But during his full life, Keel taught at his alma mater, King's College Choir School, for two years as a young man, and rose to be headmaster of Westminster Abbey Choir School in the late 1970s and 1980s. So, that 1954 televised service is where we're heading, but how did King's get there? At last year's Christmas lecture, I left you in 1928 with the 78-year-old Arthur Mann still running the choir of King's College, Cambridge. Daddy Mann, as he was known, had been in post for 52 years at this point. 52 years. He was indeed the daddy. Ten years earlier, at the end of the First World War, as a 68-year-old, Daddy had embraced the introduction at King's of Truro Cathedral's model carol service, tentatively at first, but ultimately with full acceptance. Truro's service of nine lessons with carols became King's's Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. That year, 1918, had been a year of turmoil for man since his wife of over 40 years had died in the spring while the First World War still raged. But Arthur Henry Mann ploughed on. Daddy Mann presided over not just the carol service, year on year, but 
Coral Evensong was broadcast live from King's for the first time in May 1926, when Dr. Mann was 76. And during the 1920s, because Daddy was in his 70s, and because he had built King's Choir into a first-class outfit, there was speculation as to who would succeed Mann as organist of King's. Many assumed it would be Frank Shepherdson, who had been Mann's assistant organist and had sung as a volunteer in the choir for some years. But Shepherdson died in 1925 at the age of 38, a great loss to Cambridge music. The subject of this lecture, Boris Ord, had been elected a Fellow of King's College in 1923. And after Frank Shepherdson's premature death, it seemed more or less inevitable that Ord would succeed Arthur Mann. In this photo, Daddy Mann is seated just right of centre, clearly the oldest person in the photograph, and to his left, as we look in clerical collar, is the Dean of Kings, Eric Milner-White. EMW devised the King's version of Truro Cathedral's service of nine lessons with carols. Now, though Dr. Mann was old, in the last couple of years of his life, Mann achieved some impressive things with King's Choir. As we celebrated at last year's lecture, the King's Carol service was first broadcast on Christmas Eve 1928. The format of the 1928 service is as we know it now, although these services are a bit longer these days. This year, for instance, there will be 19 sung items, whereas in 1928, there were only 14. In 1928, as there will be in a fortnight's time, there was Once in Royal David City at the start, although back then, all the choristers sang the first verse. It wasn't a solo, and the congregation didn't join in until verse 5. And at the end, I've ringed there, O come all ye faithful, and hark the herald angels sing. Incidentally, there are two other musical items in common between 2020 and 1928, while shepherds watched and in dulce jubilo. Either side of that 1928 landmark, the first live broadcast of the King's Carol Service, in 1927 and 1929, the HMV van appeared in college to make sound recordings of Mann's choir for posterity. Mann waited until so late in his career to record the choir because he wanted to capture the sound of the choir in the building. The earliest sound recordings had been made round the horn, acoustical recordings of low fidelity where issues of balance and tone quality went out of the window. But from the mid-1920s, the use of electrical recordings improved the quality of recording sound significantly. Now, in the event, Mann wasn't happy with the results, and he had recordings of music by Brahms and Charles Wood withheld. But he did allow two pieces to be released. Those were both pieces of Bach, sung in English, inevitably, and recorded in July 1929. And 
although they were recorded four months before Daddy Man's death, they weren't released until 1931, by which time Man had been dead for two years. So, here is the end of God Liveth Still by J.S. Bach. The text is at the foot of the photo. This was recorded with Arthur Mann conducting the choir of King's College, Cambridge in July 1929. A few months later, on Sunday the 17th of November 1929, Kings sang a very Cambridge evensong. The canticles were Gray in F minor, Alan Gray was organist up the road at Trinity College, and the anthem was Edward Naylor's Vox Dicentis. Naylor was the organist across town at Emmanuel College. After evensong, Arthur Mann threw his weekly tea party for the choral scholars. He felt rough and took to his bed. The next day, on the Monday, from his sickbed, he urged college authorities to appoint Boris Ord in his place. By Tuesday morning, Daddy Man had passed away. Eleven days later, on the 30th of November, 1929, College Council appointed Boris Ord organist of Kings. Three and a half weeks after his formal appointment, Ord conducted the carol service on Christmas Eve 1929, which was broadcast live on BBC Radio. Ord wasn't credited in the Radio Times as Mann hadn't been the year before. Now, you might remember this advertisement for a deluxe radio set from last year's Christmas lecture. Note the four valves, which I've ringed in red, this is high fidelity of the 1920s. One listener to Boris Ord's first carol service was so distressed by the interference he was receiving on his three-valve radio set that he wrote to the editor of The Times on Christmas Day. Colonel Sir Stuart Sankey of Little Hamden in Buckinghamshire wrote, Sir, the BBC has recently contrived that the programmes from London and Daventry should be delivered simultaneously into our receiving sets. And in this neighbourhood, no mere three-valve set seems able to divorce them. On Christmas Eve, the choir of King's College Chapel gave us carols, which would have been delightful had they not been accompanied by banalities from 2LO and the bidding prayer and Lord's Prayer from Daventry were punctuated 
by the dance music of the wireless orchestra from London. Disgusted of little Hamden, claiming that his three-valve radio set wasn't fit for purpose. In fact, because King's was broadcasting when the sun was setting, Colonel Sankey was probably experiencing interference from a foreign radio station, but might have believed that he was hearing Jack Payne and his BBC Dance Orchestra, who were indeed broadcasting on 5GB Daventry Experimental at the time. But you can hardly blame the BBC for the behaviour of the ionosphere. What is now clear is that at Christmas 1929, Sir Stuart should have been careful what he wished for. In the following year, 1930, the BBC didn't broadcast the nine lessons from Kings at all. Fortunately, in 1931, the BBC did again broadcast the carol service, as it has done every year since, making 1930 the only year since 1928 that it has not. Obviously, the carol service had been missed, as is made clear in the Radio Times in 1931. And maybe you can just make out bottom right there. This is a welcome reappearance of the Christmas Eve carol service from King's College, which was broadcast in 1928 and 1929. It is one of the loveliest services to be heard anywhere. And just above the red box there, B. Ord was billed as organist. This was not the first time that Ord's name had appeared in the Radio Times. It had appeared over two years earlier, in August 1929, as the harpsichordist accompanying the soprano Elsie Sudderby in a recital of old English music. Now, early music was a thing for Ord, and early music was introduced to King's under Ord. Indeed, the addition of early music to the King's diet was very much encouraged by Eric Milner-White, the Dean of King's. Milner White had found Daddy Man's dedication to Victoriana a little bit unreconstructed. Now, I'm here today specifically to celebrate the centenary of Boris Ord arriving in Cambridge. In 1920, 100 years ago, Corpus Christi College in Cambridge was looking for an organ scholar. So Corpus contacted the Royal College of Music in London and two organ students were sent to Cambridge for interview and audition. One wasn't up to the job, musically speaking, and the other, unforgivably, put his foot on a sofa during the interview. I mean, really, that wouldn't be acceptable today, let alone a hundred years ago. As it happened, one of the fellows at Corpus had heard one Bernhardt Ord play the organ for services at the Grosvenor Chapel in London. So the Royal College of Music was asked to send Ord to Cambridge. Mr Ord was duly appointed organ scholar of Corpus Christi College. So Ord's time in London had been important. First, because it was in London that he was talent spotted by Will Spence from Corpus. And secondly, because when Ord was playing at St Martin in the Fields in London, he rubbed shoulders with musicians who would soon be known all over the world as the English singers. 
their performance style of early music significantly informed Ord's approach to early music. But Ord wasn't just interested in early music, he was, for instance, passionately devoted to opera. Indeed, Ord spent the year 1928 working at the Opera House in Cologne. Ord had a German mother, and he'd been christened Bernhardt. And the young, opera-loving organist Bernhardt Ord had wandered around Cambridge inseparable from his score of Mussorgsky's opera Boris Godunov. And so Bernhardt Ord became known as Boris, after Boris Godunov, by everyone. Moving ahead, after a handful of years as organist of King's College, Cambridge, the Foreign Office, under the auspices of the new British Council, that's the British Committee for Relations with Other Countries, approached Boris Ord to mount a North European tour with his choir. As an aside, in that same year, 1935, the opening verse of Once in Royal David City became a solo. Here they are at Hamburg Station on their tour. And so, after a year of planning, King's Choir embarked on its first foreign tour. In March 1936, the Choir of King's Cambridge gave concerts in Amsterdam, Hamburg, Copenhagen and Stockholm. Indeed, Ord's presence in Sweden helped to fan the flames of the development of the modern interest in choral singing there. Audiences were spellbound, mostly by the blend of the choir and the assurance of the boy choristers on the top line, but also by Boris Ord, who, rather than using a music stand, held his music with his right hand while conducting with his left. Audiences were further stunned when Ord left the choir mid-piece to walk to the organ to play the next item. There's no footage of Ord leaving the choir to fend for itself on that 1936 tour, but we can get the idea. Here's King's Choir singing the carol, A Virgin Most Pure. Boris is shortly going to read from the Bible. So in the last verse of the carol, he'll leave the choir to look after itself. Boris was quite frail by this stage, so his progress is measured. But the choir's ensemble is immaculate including a unanimous healthy forte for the final refrain and a perfectly judged slow-up at the end of the last verse. Then Boris segues effortlessly into his biblical reading. This, ladies and gentlemen, is choral direction. Oh, 
shepherds go unto the manger. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. The very definition of calm liturgical action and effectively choral direction on remote. At the outbreak of the Second World War, the orders of service for the King's Carol Service were a sign of the times. ARP, for those who are too young to remember or who missed the 1970 sitcom Dad's Army, stands for Air Raid Precautions. The anti-chapel was to be evacuated first in the event of an air raid, the choir second. But the BBC turned up to broadcast the service nevertheless. And in 1939, the BBC invented a history for the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols that is jaw-dropping. The announcement that prefaced the 1939 radio broadcast said this. The festival has been held since the chapel was built nearly 500 years ago, and the atmosphere of tradition is preserved by ranks of lighted candles glowing in the scarlet cassocks of the choristers. In fact, as many of you attending this lecture will know, far from being five centuries old, in 1939, the festival was only celebrating its 21st birthday. But it's easy to see why such grotesque sexing up of the facts might have been undertaken at the end of 1939. National traditions needed celebrating at the beginning of the Second World War. By this stage, a festival of nine lessons and carols in King's College Chapel upon Christmas Eve was not just broadcast nationally. In 1936, the BBC Empire Service, the predecessor to the World Service, broadcast a recording of the carol service. In 1937, the Mutual Broadcasting System, a new American radio network, took the service. And in 1939, French and Italian broadcasting networks got in on the act. It had been less than 10 years since Festivalgate when the BBC hadn't broadcast the service on Christmas Eve of 1930, and which had resulted in dissatisfaction all round. Still only a teenager in 1939, the BBC was about to get it very wrong again. Christmas Eve this year falls on a Sunday, and we are bound to include on a Sunday the usual number of religious services. Thus, to take an hour and a quarter's carol service in addition to the usual quota would overweight that day with this kind of programme. Now, the BBC's solution was to broadcast only part of the service from King's. Graham Williams, BBC Outside Broadcasts executive, wrote to the Dean of King's, Eric Milner-White, on the 6th of December, 1939. What is so revealing is that Graham Williams doesn't question the fact that many listeners are going to be irritated. That was apparently a given. We must lose some of the service and so irritate listeners who enjoy the carol service. But we believe that the irritation will be much less if we break into it and leave it its completion rather than start when you start and then leave before the end. In the one case, the beauty of the service will help to soothe the listener's initial irritation at having missed its beginning. 
In the other, the irritation will come at the end and so be more likely to persist and thereby neutralise the earlier enjoyment. Back in King's, Eric Milner-White proved himself to be more attuned to the requirements of public service broadcasting than anyone causing the fracas at the BBC. Milner-White wrote back to Williams by return. If you take the first half hour of the service, not only is the timing exact, but you get those sections which the outside world loves most to hear. The boys opening solo, the beautiful Christmas bidding prayer, the lesson read by the chorister as well as one other, and no fewer than five of the best and loveliest carols. The whole ending with a great congregational carol, God rest ye merry, gentlemen, which will serve admirably as a climax for this first section. Milner White went on. If I say finally that the college insists on this, it is only to save the BBC from making a bad mistake. Notwithstanding the fact that Eric Milner White describes his own bidding prayer as beautiful, but then, I mean, it really is, the force of the Dean's argument was accepted by the BBC. Indeed, just one week later, we learn that Mr. Williams has now left this department. And in the event, things happened just as Eric Milner White had insisted that they should. The BBC's director of outside broadcasting was the legendary Seymour de Lobiniere lobby. I am only sorry that we gave you and the college authorities so much trouble in bringing us, and myself in particular, to our senses. The first time that television cameras were allowed into King's Chapel was the following year, in 1940. That's part of a 10-minute Quentin Reynolds feature describing the Blitz of 1940 to his viewers back home in America. Christmas under fire. The Radio Times, as it was required to do, anonymised the location of the 1940 service from a college chapel. But soon, as the results of the increased call-up and constant changes of personnel the number of weekday services was cut down. During the spring of 1941, Boris returned to the RAF as Flight Lieutenant Ord. Boris had served in the Royal Flying Corps, as the RAF then was, in the First World War. So Ord's place as organist of King's was taken by Dr Harold Dark, Dickie to the choristers. Seated in the centre there, from left to right, Harold Dark in pinstripe suit, Eric Milner-White in clerical collar, and Boris Ord in RAF uniform. In 1944, Ord took part in the Normandy landings. Back in Cambridge, the choir themselves 
battled on. Harold Dark there, seated uh, next to Dean Rollo Graham Campbell, later Bishop of Colombo in what was then Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. During the war, it was difficult to sustain membership of the back rows. As you can see from this programme for a concert in Kings in June 1944, there are 16 singers on the top line, joined by four basses, two altos, and a solitary tenor, a vocal disposition well known to many a choir, even in peacetime. Boris returned to Cambridge at the end of 1945, but insisted that Dickie Dark conducted the Christmas carol service because Dark had planned it all. So Boris Ord played the organ, and the organ scholar David Wilcox turned Boris's pages. In 2008, a BBC poll of choirmasters and choral experts voted Harold Dark's In the Bleak Midwinter their number one Christmas carol. Here it is with Dickie Dark himself conducting the fourth and final verse. This is from that 1945 King's Carol Service. Beautiful and particularly beautifully paced. But notice the a ah vowels, which tend towards an e. Eh. What can I give him, poor as I am? This was a Dicky Dark thing, not a Boris Ord thing. And one of the few things that Boris Ord had to iron out when he took over the choir again at the very beginning of 1946. Now, Boris didn't allow King's Choir to be recorded until 1949. The war had disrupted things, and Ord needed to break some of the habits of the Dark Ages, as he referred to them. First came recordings for Columbia of Christmas carols. Once in Royal David City, obviously. Pearsall's in Dulce Jubilo. The Three Kings by Peter Cornelius, arranged by Ivor Atkins. And Charles Wood's Ding Dong, Merrily on High. Then, between 1949 and 1952, 15 pieces for Columbia's Anthology of English Church Music. But in the early 1950s, Boris started to show symptoms of sclerosis. Boris had a fall in 
early 1954. And in July 1954, the choir recorded an LP of the Christmas carol service. At Christmas, cameras arrived to record a 45-minute version of the service for television. The service was recorded in advance as live and broadcast on the 23rd of December. Here's the first verse of Once in Royal at the start of the 1954 televised service. The treble soloist there was Rodney Williams, who was 13 years old in 1954. As I've said, in July, the choir had recorded a selection of items from the carol service for release on vinyl, so the singers were more in practice than usual when the TV cameras turned up in December. For many years, I've loved that clip of the opening of the 1954 carol service, and I've always wondered what it must feel like to sing that solo in King's Chapel. So, I thought I'd ask Rodney Williams himself what the 1954 Once in Royal TV experience had been like. I knew I was doing it. I'd done it on the record in the summer, and everybody knew that I would do it, unless I got laryngitis or something. There was none of this last minute you, like Wilcox for all, all that is, it's not nonsense. <laughs> I knew I was doing it. And... Uh, I did it. Boris got his tuning fork out. I think the organ ended in the right key, but... Ah, ah, he went in his gravelly Louis Armstrong voice. And I'd already got to put my tuning fork to make sure I got the right key. <laughs> and I, I started off and he wagged his finger. But uh, people said, weren't you terrified? No, I wasn't. I, he gave me confidence. It is notable uh, that actually the only conducting that Boris does during Once in Royal is you, the one person that he doesn't need to conduct because it's a solo. Yes. He conducts and everybody else, he lets them get on with it. Yes. Well, he hardly did anything in the, in the service, just a flick of the finger. Oh, a nod of the head or a look. Uh, uh, the, the ensemble was meticulous. It was absolutely spot on. His rhythm was so good. His rhythm was so good. And so it was. Boris fostered immaculate rhythm and sensitive phrasing. Harold Dark shared those priorities with Boris, which is presumably why Boris Ord chose Harold Dark to deputise for him during the war. One of my mentors, the singer, choral conductor and teacher, Julian Smith, was a chorister under Ord and mostly Dark, and inherited that rhythmic poise and drive. I've always felt, however spuriously, 
that while I've never had anything actively to do with the choir of King's College, Cambridge, that through Julian Smith I am, albeit remotely, linked to the tenets of that mid-20th century golden age at King's. In rehearsals, Boris Ord could be physically quite demonstrative, but in performance, Boris didn't really conduct much as such. He waggled the middle finger of his left hand or mouthed the words and nodded his head. A few flicks of the finger and nods of the head. That's your lot. It's worth pausing just to consider what Boris achieved with his unique way of training King's Choir. Let's compare the singing under Arthur Mann with the singing under Boris Ord. It's an unfair comparison, obviously, because of the technology. But comparisons can still be made, nevertheless. First, some Bach under Arthur Mann, moving to the same piece under Boris Ord. It's the vibrancy that Boris Ord brings to the treble line and a forward momentum that is never, ever rushed. Crucially, there is no showmanship, only a deep-rooted respect for the words and their musical setting. You listen to that passage in Boris Ord's hand and you are left with the affirmation that, yes, God is living still. Boris Ord wasn't a composer. I mean, he clearly was. He just chose not to compose. Apart from some early songs and the odd descant to a hymn, it wasn't his thing. 
Adam Lay Bounden is the only published piece by Boris Ord, and he wrote it of necessity. I find it regrettable that many people who know the name Boris Ord associate him only with the composition of a tiny carol and not as one of the finest choral directors of the 20th century. But here's how Boris Ord came to write Adam Lay Bounden in December 1955. Boris wanted a new setting of the 15th century carol text Adam Lay Bounden for sure, and he wanted it to follow the first lesson, which told of Adam's fall. Here to explain is Rodney Williams again. He asked somebody to compose a carol for the first lesson, presumably to those words, and they hadn't done it. And he kept on waiting for it. It didn't come, it didn't come. Eventually, I think it was the last rehearsal before the service, he said, very well, I shall have to do it myself. But nobody's produced it. And he went off out of the chapel, up to his rooms, and he came back to describe bits of manuscript paper. On one, he'd written the tenor part, made two tenors, had to share it on one side, then he had another tenor part for the two tenors on the other side to share. Likewise, the altos and the basses, two or three copies of the boys all to look over, and we sang it from scruffy bits of manuscript paper. And it went all right. It went well, and we did it in the service. But it wasn't planned. I never knew who he'd asked to do it. They hadn't done it. They'd let him down. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written it. He didn't intend to. And I don't think he claimed it for a long time, did he? Oh, no. It was always music 20th century and on. And he would say, he didn't do it every year, but he would say, it's a nice piece, that. I wonder who wrote it. Here it is in the second year of its existence, conducted by the composer at the 1956 carol service. In 1957, when he was just 60 but too frail to continue, Boris Ord retired from the choir but continued as director of music at King's. In 1958, Ord became wheelchair-bound and was awarded a CBE. In 1960, Boris became bedridden and was awarded an honorary doctorate by Cambridge University. In order to have the doctorate conferred on himself in person, Boris Ord was carried out of King's 
to the sound of a wind band playing his carol, Adam Lay Bounden. And Boris re-entered Kings later in the day as Dr. Ord. At the very end of 1961, Bernhard Ord, Boris, died at the age of 64. And I feel privileged to have shared the planet with him for 10 months. How to sum up what Boris Ord achieved as a purveyor of carols? Well, first of all, to have left us with that tiny gem, Adam Lay Bounden, a beautiful antique text set sensitively, concisely, clearly, transparently, the whole thing lasting just over a minute. And actually, that short piece in itself embodies Ord's choral philosophy. A performance of Adam Lay Bounden encourages the choir to, one, make the words audible in the most natural way possible, two, phrase sensitively, three, balance the voices appropriately, four, make the sound warm and vibrant, five, obey some simple dynamic instructions in order to put across the text. It's actually an object lesson in treating a choir with respect. And Boris Ord was utterly respectful of the choir as a medium. Ord's love of opera was born of an art form where words are set to music within a dramatic narrative. What Boris did so well was to seek out the dramatic narrative of even a simple carol and bring it alive. Ord was able to transform a simple text with its simple tune into a life-affirming experience for singer and listener alike. Ultimately, he was the absolute embodiment of less is more. But the last word should go to someone who says that he learned more from Boris during his three and a half years as a chorister than in the rest of his life put together. I say I'll give him the last word, but I mean the last notes. Here's Rodney Williams, now and then. was enjoying it so much that there are relatively few questions, but there are a few. Um, so if I may direct these to you. The first question says, Eric Milner White's bidding prayers are magnificent. Have they been changed at all over the years? Um, no, it's still the te same text um, as it was then. Uh, he wrote it in uh, 1918 um, for that first uh, festival of Nine Lessons and Carols, uh, which, as we went through a couple of years ago, is uh, changing, well, making uh, a memorial service for 
the end of the First World War and a carol service. It was one and the same thing. And that's what the bidding prayer does with its fabulous words. So no, uh, it remains. I have to say, if I go to a carol service and the uh, bidding prayer isn't there, it's... Um, it's not a carol service. And actually, to be honest, and even Eric Milner-White, as you saw there, when writing to the BBC, describes his own bidding prayer as beautiful. You think, well, it really is. It really is. You, um, I'm sorry, forgive me. Are there any other known compositions by Boris Ord? Well, um, we know that he wrote a few songs early on in his life, but um, they don't seem to have survived. As I say, I've got one descant to a hymn that was scribbled down by somebody from memory. Um, so not to speak of. I mean, it becomes clear when you hear that Adam Leibounden that, I mean, he just had such craft uh, as a musician that actually he could have written any number of, uh, of pieces of music, particularly for choir. But um, maybe it's nice that there's just that one because it means you more or less have to do it <laughs> in any carol service. And the last question, do we know anything about Ord's organ playing? Yeah, um, actually, I, I didn't play any, but on, that, uh, on the recording of the 1945 carol service, on that performance of In the Bleak Midwinter with uh, Harold Dark conducting, you do hear Boris playing the organ. Uh, and it's what you'd expect. It's colourful, it's respectful. Unfortunately, presumably because of, partly because of the technology uh, and... Um, who, who knows, maybe um, there hadn't been a huge amount of practice. The, actually, the ensemble between the tenor soloist in the third verse and Boris at the organ is, is not great. That's sort of why I didn't want to play it, because it would rather demean him. But no, he was, he was clearly a very fine organist. Occasionally, he uh, even used his, his, uh, his organist for, for a, a lot of the time in those uh, uh, closing years was Hugh McLean, and um, sometimes... Uh, he would just go up to the loft and Hugh McLean would, would wag a finger. Uh, very, very graciously all done, but, but there were certain things that only Boris was able to play. So clearly he was a very fine uh, player. But of course that's not what we remember him for. Uh, we remember him for the little carol, but also as a truly remarkable choral conductor. And I spoke too soon because another couple of questions have come in. Did he ever conduct a mixed voice choir? Yeah, he did um, in Cambridge. That's actually how he started off uh, uh, conducting in Cambridge. Um, so he did conduct uh, mixed voice choirs and he explored particularly the madrigal repertory. And I have to say the, 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 the recordings that Boris Ord did uh, with his Cambridge group singing madrigals are absolutely fantastic as you might expect, because what did Boris do? He did words, and so the texts of these madrigals are really brought to the fore. Yes, and um, he used to, I mean, he, he, he used to be pretty forceful with the, uh, particularly with the ladies uh, in, in, in the choir that, that sang for him. He was much gentler with the boys, um, but with the ladies, he could be really quite fearsome. And, but they started to vie for the biggest insult that they could take. Oh, what did he say to you? Oh, he said this to me, and sort of the ruder the better. <laughs> what of the future? Will Ord's creation endure? Um, well, I mean, it is doing, isn't it? Um, we'll hear Adam Lay Bounden on the 24th of December, live from uh, King's College, Cambridge. Dan Hyde has put that down. Um, and if the question is, is there anything that you can hear in the sound of King's Choir now um, compared to that of uh, the sound of Boris Ord? Well, 
um, Boris Ord's choir, that's uh, a slightly more difficult one to answer just because of the technology. But I think I can say one thing. It's not just kings that he affected. It's literally the whole English choral tradition. It's the whole sound that he created, this, this vibrant boy's sound. But this text-based uh, text performance, but it's more than that. It's the fact that there is so much time between phrases, and yet it doesn't seem to be dragging, and it's never pushed. So I think, you know, he literally affected everything. Um, if you listen to the choir today, there are things that you could say stem from that period, but you'd also say they stem a little bit from uh, Arthur Mann as well. But I think that's the point, is that it was Arthur Mann that dragged, um, in spite of his age and in spite of his sort of Victorian uh, uh, um, ideals, um, Arthur Henry Mann dragged the choir of King's College, Cambridge, into the 20th century, and Boris Hall took it further. And it's worth saying that, that before Arthur Mann, the choir was clearly not in a very good state. Um, and indeed, Arthur Mann was the first conductor of the choir of King's College, Cambridge, that was actually interviewed. You know, there was actually a job interview people applied, and he was given the job. So Mann kind of broke the mould in all sorts of ways. The college needed to do something about the choir, and he was, he was, Mann was the man. Um, so, you know, you, you can't rule him out of the picture entirely. Um, but Boris Ord really created this sound, and it, not just in the carol as well, I could go on forever, but in, in the, the psalm singing and, and his championing of uh, new music as well as old, uh, particularly the music of Herbert Howells, for instance. So, I mean, there's really no aspect of uh, the, 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 the sort of the cathedral and collegiate choir sound and approach that he didn't affect. And I think what's surprising to me is that I didn't get it until I was probably in my 30s. I just had no idea quite how influential he was, how, how there was material that I could look at, uh, and actually how much by remote he'd influenced me. And that, that absolutely hit me, like I said, a brick to the head. I thought, but, but that's it. That's where it's all come from. All the things that I think are good come from there. Thank you. Professor Summerlee, thank you once again for a wonderful lecture, and thanks to our audience for your attention. If you're interested in exploring some more of Professor Summerlee's Christmas lectures, including several on carols from Kings, please go to our website. Our moderator is also providing some links in the online chat for you to click on. Professor Summerlee will be resuming his series on 100 years of BBC Radio, with BBC Radio in the LP era, 1948 to 1982, on Thursday the 28th of January at 6 p.m. So we'd ask you to join us for that. I'd also encourage you to have a look at our website to register for our spring 2021 lectures. We begin lectures again on the 5th of January with Sarah Hart, our professor of geometry, who will be speaking to the mathematics of bell ringing. And following that, our visiting professor of medical education, Roger Kneebone, will be discussing what surgeons can learn from polar explorers and fighter, fighter pilots. So happy Christmas to everyone um, out there from all of us at Gresham. Thank you for your support over the past year, and we hope to see you all again in 2021. Good night. <laughs>